Chapter Fourteen of the Dashay Diamonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dashay Diamonds by Richard Marsh. Chapter Fourteen Among Thieves. Cyril was vaguely conscious of the touch of someone's hand about the region of his throat, not of a soft or a gentle hand, but of a clumsy, fumbling, yet resolute paw. Then of something falling on to him, falling with a splashing sound. He opened his eyes heavily, dreamily. He heard a voice speaking as if from afar. "'Hello, chummy, so you ain't dead after all, leastwise not as yet you ain't.' The voice was not a musical voice, nor a friendly one. It was harsh and husky, as if the speaker suffered from a chronic cold. It was the voice not only of an uneducated man, but of the lowest type of English-speaking human animal. Cyril shuddered as he heard it. His eyes closed of their own accord. "'Now, then!' The words were accompanied by a smart, stinging blow on Mr. Paxton's cheek, a blow from the open palm of an iron-fronted hand. Severe though it was, Paxton was in such a condition of curious torpor that it scarcely seemed to stir him. It induced him to open his eyes again, and that, apparently, was all. "'Look here, chummy, if you're going to make a do of it, make a do of it, and we'll bury you. But if you're going to keep on living, move yourself and look alive about it. I ain't going to spend all my time waiting for you. It's not quite good enough.' While the flow of words continued, Cyril endeavoured to get the speaker's focus, to resolve his individuality within the circuit of his vision, and by degrees it began to dawn on him that the man was, after all, quite close to him, too close indeed, very much too close. With a sensation of disgust he realised that the fellow's face was actually within a few inches of his own, realised, too, what an unpleasant face it was, and that the man's horrible breath was mingling with his. It was an evil face, the face of one who had grown prematurely old. Staring eyes were set in cavernous sockets. A month's growth of bristles accentuated the animalism of the man's mouth and jaw and chin. His ears stuck out like flappers. His forehead receded. His scanty, grizzled hair looked as if it had been shaved off close to his head. Altogether the man presented a singularly unpleasant picture. As Paxton grasped, slowly enough, how unpleasant, he became conscious of a feeling of unconquerable repulsion. "'Who are you?' he asked. His voice did not sound to him as if it were his own. It was thin and faint, like the voice of some puny child. "'Me?' the fellow chuckled, not by any means in a way which was suggestive of mirth. "'I'm the Lord Mayor and Alderman, that's who I am.' Paxton's senses were so dulled, and he felt so stupid, that he was unable to understand on the instant if the fellow was in earnest. "'Lord Mayor and Alderman, you?' The man chuckled again. "'Yes, and likewise the Duke of Northumberland and the Archbishop of Canterbury.' let alone the queen's own royal physician what's been specially engaged regardless of all cost to bring you back to life so as you can be killed again the man's words made cyril think killed again what had happened to him already where was he something seemed suddenly to clear his brain and to make him conscious of the strangeness of his surroundings 
He tried to move, and found he could not. "'What's the matter? Where am I?' "'As for what's the matter, why, there's one or two things as is the matter. And as for where you are, why, that's neither here nor there. If I was you, I wouldn't ask no questions.' Mr. Paxton looked at the speaker keenly. His eyesight was improving. The sense of accurate perception was returning to him fast. The clearer his head became, the more acutely he realized that something beyond the normal seemed to be weighing on his physical frame and to clog all the muscles of his body. "'What tricks have you been playing on me?' The man's huge mouth was distorted by a mirthless grin. "'There you are again, asking of your questions. Ain't I told you not half a moment since that if I was you I wouldn't? I've only been having a little game with you, that's all.' The man's tone stirred Paxton to sudden anger. It was all he could do to prevent himself giving utterance to what, under the circumstances, would have been tantamount to a burst of childish petulance. He tried again to move, and immediately became conscious that at least the upper portion of his body was sopping wet, and he was lying in what seemed to be a pool of water. "'What's this I'm lying in?' For answer, the man, taking up a pail which had been standing by his side, dashed its contents full into Cyril's face. "'That's what you're lying in, about eighteen gallons or so of that, as nice clean water as ever you swallowed.' "'You see, I've had to give you a sluicing or two to liven you up. "'We didn't want to feel, after all the trouble we've had to get you, "'as how we'd lost you.' "'The water, for which Mr. Paxton had been wholly unprepared, "'and which had been hurled at him with considerable force, "'had gone right into his eyes and mouth. "'He had to struggle and gasp for breath. "'His convulsive effort seemed to amuse his assailant not a little.' "'That's right. Choke away. A good plucked one you are, from what I hear. Fond of a bit of a scrap, I'm told. Nice little job they seem to have had of it, a-getting you here.' As the fellow spoke, the events of the night came back to Cyril in a sudden rush of memory. His leaving the hotel, flushed with excitement, the glow of pleasure which had warmed the blood in his veins at the prospect of meeting Daisy laden with good tidings, he remembered it all. Remembered, too, how, when he had scarcely started on his quest, someone, unexpectedly, had come upon him from behind, and how a cloth had been thrown across his face and held tightly against his mouth, a wet cloth saturated with some sticky, sweet-smelling stuff, and how it had dragged him backwards, overpowering him all at once with a sense of sickening faintness. He had some misty recollection, too, of a cab standing close beside him, and of his being forced into it. But memory carried him no further. The rest was blank. He had been kidnapped, that was clear enough. The cloth had been soaked with chloroform, that also was sufficiently clear. The after-effects of chloroform explained the uncomfortable feeling which still prostrated him. But by whom had he been kidnapped, and why, and how long ago, and where had his captors brought him? He was bound hand and foot, that also was plain. His hands were drawn behind his back and tied together at the wrist with painful tightness, as he was realizing better and better every moment. He had been thrown on his back so that his whole weight lay on his arms. What looked like a clothesline had been passed over his body, fastened to a ring or something which was beneath him on the floor, 
and then drawn so tightly across his chest that not only was it impossible for him to move, but it was even hard for him to breathe. As if such fastenings were not enough, his feet and legs had been laced together and rendered useless, cords having been wound round and round him from his ankles to his thighs. A trussed fowl could not have been more helpless. The wonder was that, confined in such bonds, he had ever been able to escape the stupefying effects of the chloroform, even with the aid of his companion's pail of water. The room in which he was lying was certainly not an apartment in any modern house. The floor was bare and, as he was painfully conscious, unpleasantly uneven. The ceiling was low and raftered and black with smoke. At one end was what resembled a blacksmith's furnace rather than an ordinary stove. Scattered about were not only hammers and other tools, but also a variety of other implements, whose use he did not understand. The place was lighted by the glowing embers of a fire which smouldered fitfully upon the furnace, and also by a lamp which was suspended from the centre of the raftered ceiling, the glass of which badly needed cleaning. A heavy deal table stood under the lamp, and this, together with a wooden chair and a stool or two, was all the furniture the place contained. How air and ventilation were obtained Paxton was unable to perceive, and the fumes which seemed to escape from the furnace were almost stifling in their pungency. While Paxton had been endeavouring to collect his scattered senses, so that they might enable him, if possible, to comprehend his situation, the man with the pail had been eyeing him with a curious grin. Paxton asked himself, as he looked at him, if the man might not be susceptible to the softening influence of a substantial bribe. He decided, at any rate, to see if he had not in his constitution such a thing as a sympathetic spot. "'These ropes are cutting me like knives. If you were to loosen them a bit, you would still have me tied as tight as your heart could desire. Suppose you were to ease them a trifle.' The fellow shook his head. "'It couldn't be done, not at no price. It's only a gettin' of you're used to what's a-comin'. It ain't nothin' to what you're goin' to have, Lord bless you, no. The baron, he says to me, says he, tie him tight, he says. Don't let's have no foolin', he says. So as when the toffs are ready to deal with him, he'll be in a humbler frame of mind. The baron? The toff? Who are they? There you are again, a-askin' of your questions. If you ask questions, I'll give you another dose from this here pail. The speaker brandished his pail with a gesture which was illustrative of his meaning. Paxton felt, as he regarded him, that he would have given a good round sum to have been able to carry on a conversation with him on terms of something like equality. "'What's your name?' "'What?' As almost unconsciously still another question escaped Mr. Paxton's lips, the fellow moving forward brandished his pail at arm's length above his shoulders, although he expected momentarily that the formidable weapon would be brought down with merciless force upon his unprotected face and head, Paxton, looking his assailant steadily in the eyes, showed no signs of flinching. It was possibly this which induced the fellow to change his mind, for change it he apparently did. He brought the pail back slowly to its original position. "'Next time you'll get it. I'm dreadful short of temper, I am. Can't stand no crossing. Talk to me about the state of the nation, or the price of coals, or your mother-in-law, and I'm with you. But questions I bar.' 
Paxton tried to summon up a smile. "'Under different circumstances I should be happy to discuss with you the political and other tendencies of the age, but just at present, for conversation on such an exalted plane, the conditions can scarcely be called auspicious.' Up went the pail once more. "'None of your sauce for me, or you'll get it. Now what's the matter?' The matter was that Paxton had closed his eyes and compressed his lips, and that a suggestive pallor had come into his cheeks. The pain of his ligatures was rapidly becoming so excruciating that it was as much as he could do to bear it and keep his senses. "'These ropes of yours cut like knives,' he murmured. Instead of being moved to pity, the fellow was moved to smile. "'Like another pailful, hot or cold?' It was a moment or two before Paxton could trust himself to speak. When he did, it was once more with the ghastly semblance of a smile. "'What a pleasant sort of man you seem to be!' "'I am that for certain sure. What would you say to a five-pound note?' "'Thank you. I've got one or two of them already. Took them out of your pocket, as you didn't seem to have no use for them yourself.' While Paxton was endeavouring seemingly to grasp the full meaning of this agreeable piece of information, a door at the further end of the room was opened and someone else came in. Paxton turned his head to see who it was. It was with a sense of shock, and yet with a consciousness that it was after all what he might have expected, that he perceived that the newcomer was the ill-favoured associate of Mr. Lawrence, towards whom he had felt at first sight so strong an aversion. He was attired precisely as he had been when Paxton had seen him last, in the long, loose black overcoat and the amazingly high tall hat. As he stood peering across the room he looked like some grotesque familiar spirit come straight from Shadowland. "'Vell, my Skittles, and is our good friend still alive, eh?' The man with the pail thus addressed as Skittles grinned at Paxton as he answered. "'The blokey's all right. Him and me's been having a little friendly talk together.' "'Is that so? I hope, my Skittles, you have been giving Mr. Paxton a little good advice?' The man with the curious foreign accent came and, standing by Cyril's side, glowered down on him like some uncanny creature of evil origin. "'Well, Mr. Paxton, I am very glad to see you, sir, underneath this humble roof, eh?' Paxton looked up at him as steadily as the pain which he was enduring would permit. "'I don't know your name, sir, or who you are, but I must request you to give me, if you can, an explanation of this extraordinary outrage to which I have been subjected.' "'Outrage, eh? You have been subjected to outrage?' "'Alas! it is hard, Mr. Paxton, that a man of your character should be subjected to outrage. Not true, eh? "'You'll be called to account for this, for that you may take my word. My absence has been discovered long ago, and I have friends who will leave no stone unturned till they have tracked you to your lair.' "'Those friends of yours, Mr. Paxton, will be very clever if they track me to what you call my lair, until it is too late, for you.' you have my promise. Before that time, if you are not very careful, you will be beyond the reach of help. At any rate, I shall have the pleasure of knowing that for your share in the transaction you'll be hanged. The German-American shrugged his shoulders. Well, perhaps, that is likely, anyhow. 
"'It is my experience that sooner or later one has to pay for one's little amusements, "'as, Mr. Paxton, you are now to find.' "'Paxton's lips curled. "'There was something about the speaker's manner, "'in his voice with its continual suggestion of a sneer, "'about his whole appearance, "'which filled him with a sense of loathing "'to which he would have found it impossible to give utterance in words.' He felt as one might feel who was brought into involuntary contact with an unclean animal. "'I don't know if you are endeavouring to frighten me. Surely you are aware that I am not to be terrified by threats.' "'With threats? Oh, no, I do not wish to frighten you with threats. That I will make you afraid is true, but it will not be with threats. I am not so foolish. You think that nothing will make you afraid?' "'Mr. Paxton, I have seen many men like that. "'When a man is fresh and strong and can defend himself "'and still has hopes, it takes a deal, perhaps, to make him afraid. "'But when a man is helpless and is in the hands of those "'who care not what he suffers, "'and he has undergone a little course of scientific treatment, "'there comes a time when he is afraid. "'Oh, yes, as you will see. "'Why, Mr. Paxton, what is the matter with you?' "'You look as if you were afraid already.' Paxton's eyes were closed involuntarily. Beads of sweat stood upon his brow. The muscles of his face seemed to be convulsed. It was a second or two before he was able to speak. "'These cords are killing me. Tell that friend of yours to loosen them.' "'Loosen them? Why, certainly. Why not?' "'Mr. Skittles, loosen the cords which give Mr. Paxton so much annoyance, at once.' Skittles looked at the Baron with doubtful eyes. "'Do you mean it, Baron?' The Baron, as the German-American was designated by Skittles, burst without the slightest warning into a frenzy of rage, which, although it was suggested rather than expressed, seemed to wither Skittles, root and branch, as if it had been a stroke of lightning.' "'Mean it, you idiot! How dare you ask if I mean it? Do as I say!' Skittles lost no time in doing his best to appease the other's anger. "'You needn't be nasty, Baron. I never meant no harm. You don't always mean just exactly what you say, and that's the truth, Baron. Never you mind what I mean at other times. This time I mean what I say. Untie the ropes which fasten Mr. Paxton to the floor.' The ropes about his hands and feet, they are nothing. They will do very well where they are. A change of position will do him good, eh? Lift him up to his feet and stand him in the corner against the wall. Skittles did as he was bid, at any rate to the extent of unfastening the cords, which, as it were, nailed Paxton to the ground. The relief was so sudden, and at the same time so violent, that before he knew it he had fainted. Fortunately, his senses did not forsake him long. He returned to consciousness just in time to hear the baron. "'My skittles, you get a pail of boiling water, so hot it will bring the skin right off him. It's the finest thing in the world to bring a man out of a faint. You try it, quick, you will see.' Paxton interposed feebly, just in time to prevent the drastic prescription being given actual effect. "'You needn't put your friend to so much trouble.' I must apologize for going off. I was never guilty of such a thing before. But if you had felt as I felt, you might have fainted too. That is so, not a doubt of it. And yet, Mr. Paxton, a little time ago, if I had told you that just because a cord was untied you would faint like a silly woman, you would have laughed at me. 
It is the same with fear. You think that nothing will make you afraid. My friends and myself, we will show you. We will make you so afraid that even if you escape with your life and live another fifty years, you will carry your fear with you always, always, to the grave. The baron rubbed his long, thin, yellow hands together. Now, my skittles, you will lift Mr. Paxton on to his feet and you will stand him in the corner there, against the wall. He is very well again, in the best of health and in the best of spirits, eh? Our friend, there was a perceptible pause before the name was uttered, Lawrence, you know Mr. Lawrence, my skittles, very well, is not yet ready to talk to our good friend Mr. Paxton, no, not quite yet. So, till he is ready, we must keep Mr. Paxton well amused. Is that not so, my Skittles, eh? Acting under the Baron's instructions, Skittles picked up Mr. Paxton as if he had been a child, and, although he staggered beneath the burden, carried him to the corner indicated by the other. When Cyril had been placed to the Baron's, if not to his own satisfaction, the Baron produced from his hip pocket a revolver, no toy affair such as one sees in england but the sort of article which is found and commonly carried in certain of the western states of america and which thereabouts is called with considerable propriety a gun this really deadly weapon the baron proceeded to fondle in a fashion which suggested that after all he actually had in his heart a tenderness for something now my skittles it is some time since i have had practice with my revolver i am going to have a little practice now i fear my hand may be a trifle out it is necessary that a man in my position should always keep it in eh mr paxton i am going to amuse you very much indeed i am a pretty fair shot that is so if you keep quite still very very still indeed i do not think that i shall hit you perhaps not but if you move ever so little, by just that little you will be hit. It will not be my fault, it will be yours, you see. I am going to singe the lobe of your left ear. Ready? Fire! The Baron fired. Although released from actual bondage to the floor, Mr. Paxton was still to all intents and purposes completely helpless. His hands remained pinioned, cords were wound round his legs so many times and were drawn so tightly that the circulation was impeded and without support he was incapable of standing up straight on his own feet he had no option but to confront the ingenious baron and to suffer him to play what tricks with him he pleased whatever he felt he suffered no signs of unwillingness to escape him he looked his tormentor in the face as unflinchingly as if the weapon which he held had been a pop-gun Scarcely had the shot been fired than, in one sense, if not in another, he gave the shootest as good as he had sent. "'You appear to be a braggart as well as a bully. You can't shoot a bit. That landed a good half-inch wide of my left ear.' "'Did I not say I fear my hand is a little out? Now it is your right ear which I will make to tingle. Ready? Fire!' Again the baron fired. So far as one was able to perceive, his victim did not move by so much as a hair's breadth, yet there was a splash of blood upon his cheek. "'Now I will try to put a bullet into the wall quite close to the right side of your throat. Ready? Fire!' End of chapter 14